Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein. Today, we have a returning guest, Angel Eduardo. Angel is a, he's the king of star manning. Angel, I also think that you may be the most rational voice on Twitter. Like you're making, (laughs) (laughs) I see you, 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 you are, you are to me at least, um, so we are we have a lot to talk about today, but you know the drill before we before we get started. What did we bring to the table, Angel? Did you are you drinking out of your Superman cup again? No, no. This time I uh, just drinking some water out of a out of a thermos. <sighs> You're disappointed without the Superman cup. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, no, that's your thing. Actually, I'm actually not at home, so uh, oh. I don't have all my all my Superman accoutrement. Accoutrement, yes. <laughs> no, but I'm saving my calories for dinner. In a oh, okay. Well, I'm starting already. David, what about you? I am afraid I'm going to have to disappoint. I did not have time between Zooms to pour myself a drink. Okay. So. All right. Well, then I'm going to be the one. I'm very excited about this. It's called Ranch Water Hard Seltzer. And you can see it's got a bull on it, like the bulls in my background. And it's spicy. It's um, natural lime juice and jalapeno flavor. So look, I'm I'm like actually going like, okay, not that spicy, but whatever. That's, (laughs) that's what we're going with today. Um, Okay. So we have with Angel, you know, the, the conversation started, he he posted something as per usual, which was brilliant. And he said, (laughs) I don't believe in, it's not colorblind, it's color blah. And I want to know what color blah is, because I love that. I love that. You know, let me just back up a minute before I let you go. You know, I, I hear the different conversations around colorblindness. I mean, honestly, I think it's kind of silly, and I think we get wrapped up in semantics. I mean, obviously, no one is colorblind, right? I mean, we're not colorblind. But the idea behind being colorblind is that we see people based on their on their characteristics and not these immutable care um, immutable traits. So, what is wrong with colorblindness, and where should we be color blah? <laughs> well, uh, it really is a semantic problem. I think that I don't think that there's anything wrong with the term colorblind. Uh, because I think that at least up until recently, um, the appropriate amount of slack was given to a metaphorical concept that's meant to illustrate an idea or an ideal. And it worked just fine. People, Everybody understood what everybody else meant by colorblind. Nobody thought, as far as I know, I mean, I was a kid when I first heard it and I never thought this. Um, nobody thought that colorblind means race blind or racism blind, right? It, it doesn't mean you don't see things. It doesn't mean you can't tell, hey, this guy is African-American. It doesn't mean that you don't see, hey, you know, this particular group of people um, deal with these particular problems or, or are in these particular circumstances as a result of racism or things like that, uh, you know, whatever other kind of prejudice there is. I, you know, it never meant that. And people understood that it didn't mean that. 
and it was meant to illustrate, you know, the the Martin Luther King ideal of judging someone by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. That was the whole point of it, right? But as happens, uh, you know, the semantics start to get prickly because people start to pull back a lot of that slack. They won't give people that slack. Or, you know, they there maybe there are people who are hiding behind the colorblind label and becoming racism blind or, you know, using it as a way to say, no, everything is fine. I don't see color. I, I have no problems with being racist. I have no racist tendencies, even if they do. Um, so it's just, you know, people start lying and then other people start lying in response. And, it, and you know, a perfectly good term like colorblind becomes um, useless. Um, and, you know, I see it a lot on Twitter. I see it, people arguing on and on about, you know, the people who want colorblind just want to ignore racism. And that's, of course, not what most people want to do at all. It's what they were taught when they were kids. When I was a kid, I was taught, hey, colorblindness is something to aspire to. It's the, the Martin Luther King dream of, you know, race not mattering, race being as inconsequential to your judgment of people and to our treatment of people as hair color or eye color, right? It's just, you know, it's obviously you see it. You can tell, hey, I'm not exactly the same as you, but that's not going to factor into the way I treat you. That's not going to factor into the way I, I talk about you or interact with you. So, um, I mean, it's it's a total joke, right? But but I just came up with, well, maybe, you know, colorblind is too incendiary now. We've, we've got to, you know, we've got to nix it because too many people are, either intentionally or not misinterpreting it. So we need some other way of, of articulating the point, which is we obviously see race and we see racism, right? Or at least we see what we call race, right? Because I'm, I'm of the opinion that race is nonsense and that we really just need to stop, you know, kind of reifying it. But um, so we need something else. So I just thought, well, what if we just call it color blah, right? Like, obviously we see it, but we're just kind of like blah about it. We don't care. You know, it's, it's inconsequential. Like, I don't care what t-shirt you're wearing. That's not going to change how I feel about you. And I don't care what color your skin is. That's not going to change how I feel about you. It's blah. It's, you know, me noticing that you have more melanin than me or less melanin than me doesn't move me any further towards getting to know you, figuring out whether I like you. It doesn't do any of that. It's just blah. So, so I just proposed that on Twitter and a few people saw it. They thought it was funny, I guess. Um, I haven't written an essay on it or anything like that. It's just something that I, you know, off the cuff sort of thing. And some people like it. You like it. I loved it. <laughs> so that's what it Ask is. About, can I ask a little bit? I, I love it too, by the way. I think it's, it's great. <laughs> and I was, li um, I was listening to Yashka Monk um, interview Camille Foster on his uh, podcast the other day. And I just pulled up the transcript really quickly because I thought he captured a different version of sort of the uh, colorblind aspiration. And this is how he described it. Humans are deeply tribal creatures. And so, uh, and so questions like race or religion deeply structure society and likely will for a long time. But the project of institutions is to push 
back against that, to allow us to have solidarity with each other, to allow us to maintain a complicated project like the United States of America that is a multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy. And so, yes, we need to recognize these groups and the fact that they will never go away, but we need our institutions to some extent to push back against them precisely so we don't end up with a society that's deeply tribal. In other words, what he's arguing is that um, is that you know this is not just rec- the I, the ideal of colorblindness is has an institutional purpose in a way. It's it's to make sure that institutions play that sort of leveling role, and that we should still aspire to that. We don't want our institutions to give way to the same kind of tribalism that we practice in our cultural life. What do you think about that? Yeah, uh, I listened to that podcast too. Uh, Camille is, I mean, I love Camille. He's awesome. And I, I really agree. He he uh, he actually talked about it and he said something to the effect of, you know, he didn't he didn't even really like the term colorblind because it kind of suggests an impairment. It, it suggests an inability to see something that is there um, right. when 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 the whole point of the, the metaphor is aspirational, as you said, that it's it's meant to transcend something. So, you know, I guess, I guess color blau works a little bit better in yeah. that sense. It's, he's, it's very... a, he's, a, he's a radical individualist. I'm actually looking at that transcript. Um, it's an aspiration toward a world where we are regarding race in precisely the same sort of way that we regard height or hair color, because you can change your eye color or hair color with some assistance and no one comes to think, oh no, now you've totally become a different person. You're blue, you're blue today. Right. Um, so he's, he's basically, he actually doesn't like that version that Yashka Monk outlined that I just said down. That's not his, I mean, he's okay with it, but it's not his main preference. His main preference is to go beyond that in an aspirational way, say, Mm -hmm. we should just try to make it completely irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, I'm more and more agreeing with him. I I just finished reading Racecraft by uh, Barbara and Karen Fields. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the idea there is that race is a nonsense concept as I mentioned earlier, and it's, it's a fiction that we perpetuate, even those of us who are not racist perpetuate it by, by kind of, you know, accepting the premises, accepting, you know, racism is a real thing, right? So race is a fiction. Racism is a reality, right? But it's based on a fiction. And we, we kind of go, we kind of work backwards from racism to creating race and making race a real thing when it's it's nonsense and we really need to you know think about how we talk about these things and how we can address racism without reifying race right and the analogy that i always draw is you know i don't believe in god right um but i recognize that people believe in god and that belief in god has affected the world that I live in, right? The world that I live in would be completely different if people didn't believe in God before, right? And if people didn't believe in God right now, the world would be very different. So I recognize the effect of that belief on the world and on my life and the way that I speak and, you know, the the metaphors that we use and the historical um, events that we point to as, as, you know, points of commonality things like that, right? Like we, you know, we kind of have biblical references and all that sort of stuff, right? So that stuff is all real, but I don't think God is real. And I don't think I need to accept God as being real in order to deal with the world that belief in God has created, right? So 
you know, it, it's it. I think it's analogous because I don't I don't need to accept race. I don't need to accept this label of I'm brown, uh, or you're black, or you're white because these labels are nonsense. But that doesn't mean that. I'm going to pretend racism doesn't exist. I'm going to pretend that other people don't believe it and act upon it, right? Those things are separate and I can do that, right? I think we can figure out a way to have these conversations. Um, it's difficult because it's so ingrained in, in our brains. You know, we can't, we just can't help but say like, you know, I'm a white guy, I'm a black guy or whatever. And then there are, there are we conflate those labels with culture and with you know community and all that sort of stuff and i think we need to figure out a way to communicate to people that none of the things that they truly value would be lost by abandoning this nonsense concept of race all the community all the camaraderie all the history all the beauty all the all the you know all the connection would still remain because the, you're still a community you're still a people you're still a you know uh you still have a, a, a history, a shared history. It still matters. None of that would get erased. The only thing that gets erased is the harmful and disgusting and ridiculous idea that was used to oppress people. You know, so I mean, it was created and used to oppress people. It was for no other purpose. So we can get rid of that. We don't need it. We, I, I, I'm, I'm confident that we're smart enough to, to be able to do that. We can do that balancing act, right? We can strip the negativity out of these things and keep all the things that matter, you know, all the music and culture and beauty, all that stuff is great. I love it. I wouldn't want to get rid of it. We just don't have to be, we don't have to internalize this idea of like, yes, I'm black, I'm brown, you're white. Like we don't need that. Um, so I'm, you know, Camille is very much on this level as well. I think he's very anti-race and more and more I'm getting there. I'm, I'm just, I, I don't want, I don't want to deal with any of that. I'm I'm opting out. You can retire from race um like uh Thomas Chatterton Williams has. Exactly. Yeah. And like Thomas Chatterton Williams, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you don't see racism and right. you don't understand it exists and you don't care, right? You totally do. I totally do. But I just don't have to play ball. Like I don't have to, mm -hmm. you know, it's like uh Sam Harris used this in a different context once, but he was talking about like, you know, atheism shouldn't be considered a belief and that the idea that it's considered a belief kind of lends it to being criticized the same way that beliefs are criticized. And it's kind of like there's this chalk outline of, of an atheist and we're just kind of crawling into it. It's kind of the same thing. It's like there's this chalk outline of a race and we're just crawling into it and just allowing it to, to overtake everything. And we don't have to. Mm. So let me ask you with color blah, this is how I see it. This is how I understand it. Let me mm. repeat what I heard. So you can, so, I mean, you know, I've got green eyes, I've got red hair, I've got white skin. It's, it, it wouldn't be that you would say I'm not, you know, you would change any of those, but it would just be one other thing, like your hair color, like your eye color. So, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about going to a driver's, you know, getting, um, going and getting a driver's license. I mean, they ask about eye color, they ask about whatnot. I think that it just becomes, I mean, would you suggest eliminating it altogether where there's no, you know, I'm brown, I'm black, I'm white, or that it just becomes a category like my eyes are green, my hair is red, my, you know, where in that do you see color blah? Hmm. Because um, I don't think that, I don't think like my eyes are green doesn't isn't involved with like race. I mean, I, I think that our skin colors are beautiful. And again, it's not that we don't see it. It's just that it doesn't matter. Right. 
But when we're trying to identify each other, oh, you know, you know, right. I, would would right. we just say, I, I mean, I don't know what color he is, you know, how, how would you address that? <laughs> uh, you know, I haven't thought about that, but so here's the problem, right? Um, my mom is 100% Dominican from the Dominican Republic, born there, raised there. Her skin is, she's about as fair as you are, right? So, um, I mean, that will help you describe her, right? Like if I'm, you know, if I'm writing a scene and I'm talking about my mother and I'll say, you know, she's got, a, you know, feathered black hair and, you know, pale skin, right? And brown eyes, you know, like, that will help you create an image. And if that's the point, if that's what you need, then you would use those descriptors, right? But saying a white person is different. Saying a black person is different. There's a whole lot that's being smuggled in underneath there. So, you know, on a driver's license, yeah, I guess if, if, if for identification purposes, you know, it's like hair red, eyes green, uh, skin pale or skin, you know, uh, fair or whatever, however we want to decide to, to mm -hmm, label the palette mm -hmm. there. Right. But, mm -hmm. but that doesn't really tell me anything about you as a person. Right. right. It just allows me to identify you. Right. If you're in a crowd and I read your description, I can say, oh, it's that one. I know, I know it's this person because I've got these mm -hmm. details. Right. Unless you're, you're in, you know, uh, some convention of redheads. <laughs> well, I mean, but that's kind of the problem, though. It's so funny. We've gotten so sensitive around race. Like, it, literally, if I'm telling someone, hey, go and meet this person, you know, you're going to they're going to be wearing a blue shirt, you know, blue jeans. If I, I sometimes I feel like I don't want to say they're black because then I'm identifying them as black or brown. It's like but I'm not in my mind. I'm like just I'm trying to give you so that you can recognize this person. Right. You know, he's wearing this. He's got black hair. He's wearing a cap, you know, black skin, whatever. <laughs> And we've gotten so, sometimes I'm like, I don't want to even say that because it's like, well, did you think that I was judging him on based on the color of skin? No, I'm just trying to give you a description, you know? Yeah. So you know, It's funny. I had an idea for like a comedy sketch and it was these two, two kids playing Guess Who? These two white kids playing Guess Who? Mm -hmm. And one kid is about to win. There's just one more person that they need to guess on the other person's board or whatever it is. Um, and they're trying to figure out, you know, the way you play that game is like, are they wearing a hat? Are they bald? You know, whatever it is. And the the other kid's last, you know, tile to flip is a, you know, black person. Um, and the other kid is trying to figure out every possible thing he can say besides, is he black? Because mm -hmm. he, he's terrified, right? <laughs> he's just like sweating <laughs> and it's super intense and they'll play intense music. And it's the base, same basic thing. And I've been in that situation, right? Where someone is like, hey, can you hand this to my friend John over there? And I go, who is John? And I'm looking and there's, you know, 13 people in the, in the proximity. And I'm like, oh, it's the guy with the, with the blue shirt. But there's four guys with blue shirts. Uh, it's the guy with the long hair. There's three guys with long hair. And I'm like, you mean the black guy? Just say the black guy. You know? <laughs> Like I wouldn't say that now because I'm trying to I'm trying to to actively force myself out of using those categories, right? Mm. Whenever I write those, whenever I write them, because I just to be clear, if I'm talking about something, I use scare quotes now um, because I really just want to at least take a step back from reifying these things, right? But but yeah, at the time, it's like, look, just say the Jamaican dude, just say the dude with dreadlocks. You know, mm -hmm. whatever it is, because what you're trying to do is point somebody out. 
Um, but you know, I mean, as we know with, you know, uh, you know, whatever they call it, when, um, the police put in like a, a description of a suspect or whatever, you know, the suspect is African-American, approximately six, five, whatever the wrong person gets picked up a lot, right? The wrong person right. gets stopped a lot. So clearly it's not very good at doing the thing that it's ostensibly meant to be doing. So I'm sure we could figure out something better anyway. Well, you bring up something really, really interesting. I, 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 sorry, David, to, to, to dominate no, this, but this is really fascinating to me. See, my husband's in law enforcement and we have this discussion quite a lot because in where he, where he works, they have stopped using race as a category. And, um, they, they, well, they use it still within internally because, you know, they've got to find the right person. And again, it's a, to me, it's not race. It's like it's it's anything like skin color is same as eye colors, hair color, whatever. But oh, yeah. um, they won't publish that out to the public because they don't want to you know, uh, generate stereotypes and whatnot, which I, I, I completely understand. And yet, if the public is out looking for, like you just said, the guy in the blue shirt, you know, I mean, is. Right. I mean, the, it could be, who knows? And so I think we've, when you talk about reifying race, we've done that. Like, it should not be a thing where if we say green eyes, black skin, white, you know, white skin, red hair, we've done that. And I don't know how to get away from that because I think that those are important descriptors mm -hmm. like we've just noted for saying, hey, and when do, how do we get past the point where we can just go, hey, you know, my friend over there with the black skin and that's just, that's just normal. Like saying my friend over there with the blue eyes. Like how, how do we do that? There's a lot of work to do before we can get there with any kind of, you know, quote unquote safety, right? Because too, there's too many implications. There's too many tensions. There's too many conversations people haven't had. There are too many topics that people are really uncomfortable with. For that to be as kind of whatever, as blah as it should be, right? So that's part of the thing is, you know, color blah is just as aspirational. We're not there yet, right? Because people obviously do care right. and right. people are obviously not blah, but we want to get there. We want to get to blah. And the whole, the, the reason that I even, you know, came up with that silly thing was just to alleviate the problem of, you know, how uh, overburdened the term colorblind has become. You know, it's, it's now it's, it's a cudgel. It's a political kind mm -hmm. of weapon. You know, it's, it it's used by one group in one way. It's used by another group in another way. And people just talk past each other. The term is useless now because everyone's walking around with their own version of it. Oh, when people say this, this mm -hmm. is what they mean. And I'm going to respond as though this is what they mean, even if they don't. Um, even if in reality, that's not what they mean at all. And, you know, I think most people still mean what it was supposed to mean when they say that. But it's it's just too easy to completely mischaracterize it and then, you know, run a mile with that mischaracterization before anybody can pull the brakes and say, whoa, whoa, whoa you know? Um, so that's the problem is we still have to get to this point, right? Like I can do it myself um, just because, you know, whatever it is, my temperament, my, the way my brain works. When I was taught about Martin Luther King as a kid, it just clicked in my head and I'm like, yeah, that sounds perfectly good. That sounds reasonable. Yeah. Okay. So, Treating people a certain way based on these things is ridiculous. We shouldn't do that. Okay. And that was sort of it, you know, uh, in my brain, that was, that was it. And I, you know, maybe it's easier or it was easier for me because, you know, as I mentioned, like my mom is very fair. 
my father looks much more like me. We have the same sort of complexion, the dark features and things. And I have cousins who kind of look, you know, um, East Asian, right? Like they, they just kind of have a sort of East Asian vibe. Like I've met Chinese girls who look just like a cousin of mine. You know, they look very, very similar, which is odd. But my cousin is 100% Dominican. So it just shows that, you know, these categories are, are amorphous and mm -hmm. especially the racial ones are completely ridiculous. And, you know, when, when it comes to something like the Dominican Republic, where, you know, I think I think it's 90 percent of people from the Dominican Republic have direct African ancestry. Right. Because of the obvious reason, uh, you know, slavery. And then, you know, I did my genetic profile thing, the Ancestry.com thing, and it's you know, Dominican Republic, and then it just immediately jumps straight to, you know, Spain and Portugal and, you know, East Africa, West Africa, all that. Stuff. It's a mix of all these things. So it's just, that's part of it too, is just that these categories are, are completely inaccurate, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, we, it, it will be difficult because we've kind of built so much upon these categories. Yeah. That it's going to feel kind of like pulling the you know the bottom Jenga piece out, right? It's gonna it's gonna kind of be people are worried the whole structure is gonna collapse. I don't think it will. I think that we can do it, but we have to make a conscious effort to do it, and it's difficult. Yeah, you know, I I did my twenty three and Me, and I am fifty point three percent Asian, West Asian. My mom <laughs> happens to be from Baghdad, Iraq. It's very funny. I'm I'm married to. Um, an Asian, East Asian woman, and I have um, Asian stepkids, and uh, I always like to tell them I'm a majority. I'm Asian. I'm Asian American, and they, um, and they just start laughing and denying my ethnic claims. But you know, it also just tells you how, you know, how vacuous these things tend to be. Can I switch gears? I'm the ADD person here. I'm always looking to sort of like pivot. You know, my um, so. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we had a Hold My Drink podcast with uh, Charles Love, and it was funny and delightful. Oh, and Charles. I got into, yeah, I got into a nice argument with Charles, in which I was the person arguing that I think that there is systemic racism in certain institutions, and he was denying that it exists at all in modern America. Um, right. And it, it, I, it, I was happy to have the conversation because the discourse tends to be. Either systemic racism is ubiquitous and defines American life in every single way, yeah. or another camp says it doesn't exist at all. Um, and I'm trying to sort of get to the bottom of it. And by the bottom of it, I don't mean that every I, I'll come up with the answer of how much systemic racism exists, but to help create a discourse that allows us to actually engage in inquiry over the topic of where it exists, if at all, and what it means to say that there's systemic racism in an institution and how do we know it or how might we suspect it even where it exists. And I'm wondering where you come down on that. I don't think we talked about that in our previous podcast. No, I don't think so. And I'm, I'm not sure. I think my tendency is always to say, okay, well, it's probably a little bit of both, right? Charles is probably right in the sense that it's not everywhere. It's not, you know, it's not this, you know, kind of rotted core to our society. He's probably right there. I don't think every every bit of our system is is 
deeply infused with racism, right? And it, it also depends that's, on... The- by the way, for the record, that's my stance. Charles is saying it doesn't exist at all. I say right. that it's not... America is not systemically racist, but there is systemic racism in America. That's what right. my argument is. Yeah, yeah. And I probably fall... I probably fall in line with, with where you are generally. Uh, and it depends on what the definition is there, because that's the other thing. Is we can define that however we want. You know, it it's... You know, there are definitions running around where if there is any disparity between these racial groups, that is evidence of systemic racism. That's how we're going to define it. You know, the definition is we don't have perfect parity in whatever, you know, topic or or field uh, we're looking at. And so there it is right there. I mean, what what could the answer be besides that? Right. And then it turns into this kind of accusatory sort of question where it's like, what are you saying the explanation is? It must be racism. Otherwise, you're saying one group is inferior or, you know, whatever. And it starts to get crazy. Um, exactly. I mean, you know, I think uh, slavery was a was pretty systematic. Right. <laughs> and there are going to be ripple effects to that um, even after slavery ends. Right. And you have. Uh, Jim Crow and redlining, those were pretty systematic, right? Uh, and then, you know, I mean, systems are, what are systems? You know, they are, they're apparatus that we, we operate as people, right? People are operating them. If people operating systems are racist, the systems will probably, you know, there will probably be some racism coming out the other side, right? And then it's possible when a system is very large and multifaceted and complex, that even after those racist people are replaced by people who are not racist, the system is still churning out racist stuff on the other side because systems take a long time to kind of correct themselves. You know, it's, it's the, the Barack Obama metaphor of the ocean liner, right? We can't make a hard 90 degree turn, right? It's, it's, a, it's a slow progression to make a turn. Um, what is that? Can you think of an example of where, and I agree completely with what you said, of course, I think that there can be ripple effects, but can you think of an example of where an institution was intentionally racist at some point mm-hmm. um, and ceased to be intentionally so, but still is churning out racist outcomes? Can you think of a specific way uh, that that manifests itself? Uh, I'm not super educated on this, but uh, my understanding from what I've read and, and heard people discussing this stuff is you know just where certain groups of people live right the redlining phenomenon yeah it's a direct result of where they could live before and whether those communities those those areas those districts are underserved and underprivileged it's probably the result of you know policies that kind of you know um intentionally um, left pe- left these people out, or you know, they're trying to kind of squeeze them, right? So, the fact that we still have communities that are poor is probably the result of that, at least to some degree, right? Maybe not a hundred percent, but there. I mean, there's just no way that something that big and that systematic is not going to still have ripple effects that we have to deal with, right? Because we haven't corrected everything. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm no scholar. I'm not an expert on any of this stuff. Um, It's just my, you know, reasoning by myself, with myself. But, um, 
yeah, I, I have no trouble believing that there are going to be after effects. And it doesn't necessarily mean that anybody's racist now, though, of course, people are. Um, but I think that even even though we think we have a fair system, right, that we kind of talked about this part of it last time. It's like we think we have a meritocracy, right? We think, no, look, hey, anyone who passes the finish line gets the the medal and that's fair. So we're cool. We fixed it. Everything is fair. But, you know, you have to take into account, like, not everyone is starting at the same place and not everyone's got running shoes and all that sort of stuff. So I think those things are, I mean, why don't they have them? Why don't they have running shoes? There's a There's a chain of prior causes there that we have to look at. And I'm sure racism is part of it. So that's my, you know, haphazard sort of musing out loud answer to you. But I'm, I'm definitely not an expert, so I could be totally wrong about it. You know, and it's interesting, the idea about that redlining would create sort of um, fixed patterns of, of residency and the like. You know, I still don't think that that's above scrutiny. Like you could say, at what point does do people then re regain agency who live in those communities and have the ability to move or improve their lives? Uh, again, I, I'm, I'm not trying to blame people who have been victimized, as they clearly have, or the, certainly their parents or grandparents were victimized. But it it doesn't answer all questions there are to uh, th that there are. And and I guess what's it, what what's in, it's important in a sense that we're able to talk about these things so we solve the right problem. And I, I worry that the discourse on systemic racism and critical race theory and the like pushes us away from solving the right problem. Um, and maybe you could say, listen, we'll agree to disagree. I don't, I shouldn't need to agree with you that systemic racism is the controlling factor here or the primary factor here in order to say, I don't want there to be major disparities in our criminal justice system. I don't want there to be major disparities in poverty. Whether or not there are cultural factors along with systemic racism uh, or there's neither of those, it doesn't really matter. What we need to do is fashion solutions that are best able to narrow these disparities. And I fear that's where our discourse has gone off track. We're not even able to do that. People want you to sort of, um, they want to subject you to a litmus, ideological litmus test before you even join the coalition. And I think that's what gotten us off track. What's your sense of that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, that this is the dogmatism that I worry about, right? It's like, well, do you care that I agree with you 100%? Is that is that what you want? What you want is for me to agree with you 100%? Or do you care that we both want to solve this problem? Right? Because it, as long as, you know, Charles wants to solve the same problems that I want to solve, I'm cool. You know, I, I don't agree with Charles 100%. Mm -hmm. But as long as, you know, if, you know, I know in my heart, I've talked to him. He's a great guy, right? I don't agree with him 100%, but who do I agree with 100%? Not even myself, right? Right, right, so, right. So, but, but he's a great he's a great guy. I like him a lot. You know, I've had a great time on his podcast. And we don't see eye to eye on everything. But I know that he cares about people mm -hmm. and that if he saw someone suffering, he would want to do something to help, right? And it's just a matter of details there, right? So now we're back to the star manning thing. But I I worry that people get lost in in their fight for whatever cause that you know they're fighting for that they're passionate about. Their passion is great, and their their motivation is great, and their feeling of 
you know, we need to do this is great. But it becomes a problem when the tenets become more important than the intentions, right? right. Because it's well, what, like, no, if, what you... if that's the purpose, though, Angel? Right. Like, okay, let me go back to so I, I was very involved in my last job in criminal justice reform. And at one point, I went to visit a local community and, and to talk to a coalition that was doing criminal justice reform. And I sort of put it out there that do I really need to agree with you that white supremacy is causing this criminal justice problem in order to engage effectively in a coalition? And I, I have to tell you, the answer was yes, that you do. Like from a lot of the activists, like they were very clear. According that, to them, you mean? According to them, right. In other words, for me to actually do the work that I would want to do, I'd have to do it on my own or find new coalition partners who yeah. agreed with me or agreed that it didn't make a difference whether we agreed. And and what what I, what I started to realize from a lot of the people that I encountered in this discourse is they were less concerned with a problem to be solved with sort of changing the terms of discourse, period. And some of them really wanted to sort of shatter white supremacy as a sort of social matrix. And that was an ideological aspiration, not a social policy aspiration. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, as you're talking, I'm just imagining, imagine a homeless shelter or a soup kitchen that's run by a, a Catholic church that only admits Catholics. You know, we would, we would immediately recoil at that. That's, and I mean, it would be ridiculous for the church to do it, right? If you have people knocking on your door saying, hey, I'd like to help, they would ask, are you Catholic? You're like, no, I'm Jewish or whatever. And they're like, oh, you can't, you can't be a helper. You know, you can't be one of the people serving soup or worse than that. You can't be one of the people getting soup from this soup kitchen because you don't believe the things that I believe. That's crazy. And, and they don't right. do that, right? They'll take any volunteer because mm -hmm. What they want, at least in that moment, is to do the thing. They want to help people who are hungry. Hey, these people are hungry. It's our mission to help these people. Let's do it. You're an atheist, but you want to help? Great. I don't care, right? I mean, that should be the attitude. And yeah, it becomes uh, worrisome to me when the question is, do you believe, do you hold these tenets? You know, do you believe these truths about the world? Can you parrot, um, you know, these, these talking points? And if not, we are not allies. If not, we don't have the same goal. Um, I think that's a delusion. I think, you know, that, that's, that's dogmatism. And if, if what you really care about is helping the disenfranchised, it shouldn't really matter as long as somebody is, you know, willing to help along with you. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, that's, that just seems self-defeating, right? And it, it seems self-defeating from the standpoint of wanting to solve the problem, right? And it seems, it's, it's worrisome to me from the standpoint of, oh, what I'm realizing is that you don't actually necessarily care about solving the problem, or at the very least, the solving the problem part is kind of ancillary to your group membership and sense of community and sense of purpose and you just want conformity in that sense so that like for your own comfort or, you know, your ideological kind of stasis. Um, but, you know, those are those are contradictory aims a lot of times. You know, you can't nobody has perfect allies. Right. The whole point of it is we are imperfect allies. 
we are not going to be totally in lockstep with each other all the time. But as long as we hold these values, as long as we have this goal, we can work together to an extent, right? I mean, it's like the whole political system. The whole point of the political system is, hey, you're much more conservative than I am, right? I'm much more liberal than you are. We're on the opposite sides of these the spectrum, but you know, ideally speaking, but we care about America and we want to move America forward. So let's argue it out and hash it out and find some compromise that moves us. You know, maybe it would have moved us ten feet, but because we had to compromise, we moved five. But five is better than zero. So I, I don't know. I, I mm-hmm. think it betrays a kind of you know. Uh, primacy of ideology over the mission itself mm-hmm. and that that frightens me because the ideology i mean dogmatism is is not good so mm. or over people itself you know dogma over people and right um yeah but i so i've got a question i want to go back to you were talking about how we've been reifying race yeah and you know my question is do you I mean, we've reified race since our history. We knew yeah, that, sure. That's why we've got racism. But mm-hmm. do you feel like there has been a new push to reify race, let's say in the past, I don't know, five to 10 years? I mean, to me, race seems to be all we talk about these days. I mean, we're talking about it now. You know, I, I don't feel like, part of me feels that this is an important discussion because I think that we needed something to push us forward i think maybe we're at an impasse or you know, we'd stalled out at the same time i think that we've almost like overcorrected where this we see race everywhere and in some ways so you we, we were talking at the very beginning about how you know let's just say color as an identifier and not as race but we've started to talk about race with everywhere everything everything is about race so and i and i don't know that and let me, I'll, I'll finish with this by saying, I don't know that what we've done lately to again, or re-reify race, <laughs> if that's even a word, right, has created that equal starting line that we all so desperately want. Yeah. I think in some ways, this, this, the re-reification of race has almost brought us back to a point where now we do see color everywhere we are not color blah nor color blind we are color obsessed oh yeah we are we are absolutely obsessed with race we see it everywhere we conjure it up everywhere like a phantom and it's not good for us it's it's awful you know and i think to myself you know for example um some an old woman she's retired and she wants to do something good in the world and she goes and decides to, you know, volunteer in, in Nigeria or something with Nigerian school children. And there's a photograph of her hugging these school children and because she loves them and she's ha- she has a relationship with them now and they love her. And there's this beautiful photograph. And when I see this photograph, I think to myself, wow, that's so beautiful. Look at this, you know, look at this image of people helping people. This is a beautiful thing, right? There are people in need and there's someone who had the means and decided to to you know give their time and energy to doing that when there was literally no obligation to do so that's beautiful other people look at that and they go oh my god another white savior mm-hmm. you know coming down and you know, doing you know like in, just infusing it with all this cynicism 
and all this kind of negativity. Um, and it's because of this whole thing, right? It's because of this whole, you know, people watch, uh, literally watch a Superman movie and they're like, this is just a white savior movie. And I'm like, dude, it, it makes me so sad that you can watch something that is meant to uplift. Um, and all you can see is division, right? It's, it's a, it's a, it's a tunnel vision that I fell prey to a little bit. You know, I, I wrote a piece about this and I fell prey to it just because it was all around me during my graduate school experience. You know, it's, it was constant, just roiling, you know, every, every syllabus we got was like, well, how many people of color, how many women? And it's, and I, you know, not that I don't care about that stuff, but it's just not as interesting to me as, is this a good book? Can I learn something from it? Right? Like I'm, I, I went I went to grad school for writing, right? So I'm here to learn the craft. I'm here to get something out of it. So, you know, if it's Juno Diaz or, you know, um, Roxane Gay or whatever, great. But I just want to learn something. That's my primary occupation. But everyone else is, you know, it's 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 social justice first. It must be about this stuff all the time. And it's exhausting. Um, I honestly don't know how they have the energy. Well, no, they actually, they always say they're exhausted. <laughs> so right. It makes sense. Right. It makes sense. It is exhausting. But it's just a, it's just, you know, you start to see it even when it's not there. Mm -hmm. and you start to make it important even when it isn't. Right. And, mm -hmm. and the whole point of everything is to move away from that. That was the whole point of, 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 you know, the civil rights movement and everything was like, hey, we're not being given a seat at the table. Give us a seat at the table. That was the point. And, you know, once we get the seat at the table, then it's like, well, stop looking at me like that. I'm just a person like you at the table. Right. But for some reason, we 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 just want to keep keep at it. And, you know, that's not to say all the problems have been solved or anything like that. Right. I can just I can hear people misinterpreting what I'm saying. Um, right. It doesn't mean all the problems are solved. They absolutely are not. It doesn't mean racism is gone. It absolutely is still here. Um, it's in my family. I mean, you know, people are racist. It's, you know, but uh, it's, it's, we need to be careful not to kind of manifest it when it wasn't there before, right? If, if, you know, there was a beautiful video that was being shared a little while ago of these two kids and um, their friends, I think they're classmates and they're really young. And one of them is, you know, white, one of them is black. And, they're like, oh, we're twins. We have the same eyebrows, right? I don't know if you saw this video. It's, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's beautiful, right? Because they don't see the nonsense that we, you know, we just create this, this thing around, right? They don't see it. They just say, hey, that's my friend. I love my friend. We're the same, right? And we should be, we should be excited and we should be encouraging that, not, not laughing at it cynically, right? Like and there's a scene in the book Racecraft that I mentioned um, where there's an anecdote where, you know, someone was, two adults are talking and they mention a person who is black and the kid goes, oh, they're not black, they're brown. Because in their head, they're not thinking about race. They're thinking, oh, that's an inaccurate description right. of this person. Like, that's not a black crayon, that's a brown crayon. Because I'm, I'm talking about the color of their skin, like it's a descriptor like we were talking about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the adults kind of laugh like, oh, look at the, you know, naive kids, like they don't know. When really it should be, you know, these naive adults are are just reinfusing these these nonsense concepts with 
with you know more importance they're heightening this this stuff they're they're validating it by accepting it and internalizing it and seeing the world that way you know we should be actively trying to see the world a better way the whole point is that you know uh, i just wrote a piece uh, an opinion piece for newsweek and i'm talking about you know <laughs> Uh, all the times that I've been accused of being white, right? And it's it's meant as a pejorative, right? It's meant as right. you're not being, you know, sufficiently or accurately of color. You know, if you listen to this music, when I was a kid, it was if you listen to this music, if you dress this way, if you talk this way, you know, if you read books, I got it all the time, right? And now it's like, if you don't vote this way, if you don't agree with the 1619 project, you know, it's all this stuff. You're not, you're not black. You're not of color. Right. And I call it the one thought rule. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, a single, a single idea. If you hold a single idea that is, that is, you know, not part of the, the orthodoxy of whatever ideological group or racial group, your, your very being is called into question. Right. Mm. And I mean, that's fucking insanity, right? (laughs) That's crazy. So, you know, Charles Love is not black because he holds conservative ideas, right? Larry Elder, they just wrote in the LA Times, he is the black face of white supremacy. Right, right. Because he holds the wrong ideas. That's disgusting, right? And it's, it's so dehumanizing and it's so minimizing and it's so essentializing, right? It's like, no, you must think this way because you have this skin, right? Or this ancestry, you must have mm-hmm. this opinion or else you are not. We're, we're going to, you know, we're going to take your card away, right? That's crazy. Um, I kind of got lost there, but yeah. It's, no, <laughs> no, you, you said so much. I mean, it's, 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 I've never thought so much in the past, you know, let's say again, five years, maybe max decade. You know, I have friends from all over and I'm like, it's not that I'm scared to talk to them, but I'm like, I, I'm, I'm always questioning. Did, was, did I, did I say that right? Is that a microaggression? And I have to tell you, here's how it's affected <laughs> me is as a woman. Now I like reinterpret everything a man says to me. Well, was that sexist? Well, did right. he like, you know, and, I, and I'm, t- and I, you get back to, I'm exhausted. Like I never thought like this before. I never, maybe I didn't care. Maybe I just never let anything that was a slight, you know, I just let it roll off me. Um, I don't, I was thinking about that today. Like what did I see slights before? And I just didn't care. And I let it roll off me. Or am I seeing more slights now because I'm paying more attention or is this all just freaking nonsense to begin with? I mean, it's affected every conversation I have. Yeah. I I mean, you know, uh, what is it? The hammer and the nail, right? When, when all you have is a hammer, every problem is a nail. Mm -hmm. It's, it's that sort of thing. I mean, I don't know if we talked about this, but I've mentioned this before that part of the way, part of the reason I'm the way that I am is because I've been wrong so many times. 100% of the time that I have decided, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm standing up for myself. I'm telling this asshole off for whatever they said to me or whatever they did in that moment. You know, that slight that I picked up and I'm like, I'm not going to ignore it this time. I'm going to, I'm going to stand up for myself. I'm going to tell this asshole off. Every single time, a hundred percent of the time that I have done that, I have been wrong. I misunderstood. I misheard. I projected something was going on that affected my perception of things that made it where once, once I let it out of my mouth, once I let my anger out, once I yelled at this person or once I, you know, insulted this person, 
or defended myself against something they didn't say and they responded like explaining something or or going what are you talking about you know and then revealing to me what i had misunderstood or missed i felt awful every single time and i still feel awful about every single one of those things i just carry that with me and it, it's it's horrible right and i i feel so guilty that i made someone feel bad and i said terrible things to them and i was wrong to do it so now i have this kind of reflex to just go okay hold on perceived slight but how many other ways could this be explained how many ways could i be misunderstanding and the thing is there are always going to be more ways to misunderstand something than to understand it, right? Mm -hmm. There's only one way to get it right, and there are a billion ways you can get it wrong. So maybe pause. Maybe think to yourself, okay, am I just obsessed with seeing sexism everywhere? Am I just mm -hmm. obsessed with seeing racism everywhere? Or is this an actual instance of racism? And that's difficult to kind of figure out. That's difficult to pinpoint. But that's why you ask questions, right? That's why you follow up. That's why you go, well, hold on. What did you mean by that? And not with hostility, but with genuine curiosity. Like, I'm trying to understand this because there's a miscommunication here. So let me figure this out. And then you might get to the bottom of it and go, okay, yeah, you were being an asshole or you were being racist, in which case you go, all right, well, I don't want to talk to you anymore. But mm -hmm. it's way better to go about it that way than, than to engage in what will almost certainly be most of the time misfires mm. because now you're you know making enemies when you didn't need to or burning bridges when you didn't need to you're you're you know kind of feeding your own kind of sense of hostility and and rancor when it wasn't necessary and it's just not good for you it's not good for you it's not good for anybody yeah there's a there's a there's a trick that we learned in consulting class called the ladder of inference and it talks about how people start with certain observations and selected data, and then they attribute meaning to what they've heard, and then they've made assumptions about the person's intent, and then they've drawn conclusions, um, and, um, and they start to take actions that are probably based not on the person's actual intent, or, but on their own inferences from that from their from what they said or how they acted and it's it happens literally all the time and if we if we understand that of ourselves and know that we're so susceptible to it it's a it's a lot easier to try to catch ourselves when we're doing it mm -hmm. um and to point out when other people are doing it at least in an organization and um but um anyway um i'm going to pivot again is it okay john yeah go um, for it <laughs> yeah so we have this uh we've been involved in a interesting controversy or tension. Um, there's a letter that all three of us signed that Jennifer and I were involved in, in creating. Um, it's a letter about the anniversary of the I Have the Dream speech. Um, it's a strongly worded letter. It's a letter that says that there are people who are trying to um, undo the powerful um, legacy of the I Have the Dream speech. And it calls them out on it and makes the makes the claim that uh, we should go back to the original purpose of the I Have the Dream speech, the original vision of a colorblind society. Um, that created some 
backlash um, among friends, by the way, among groups that we often agree with. And we're going to be talking about some of that backlash. Um, you're going to be one of the featured speakers uh, this coming Saturday about it. And, I, and, and, you know, when we first started dealing with this, we thought, oh, my God, this is just terrible. And then we started to say, let's make lemonade out of lemons here. We are, we are of the classical liberal mindset. Why not see this as an opportunity to have a thoughtful conversation in our tent and thereby demonstrate what liberal thoughtful discourse can be like um what and so so tell me angel you signed the letter but um, you might have some misgivings about it talk about where you are with it and what you're going to say on saturday when you talk about the letter yeah 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 so we're we're time traveling a little bit because i think this is going to come out after saturday um which if i'm not mistaken saturday is happening live so we'll see saturday before we see this um that is true. That's a good yeah. point. Time right. traveler. Time traveling. So yeah, time so travel we're, on. We're, we're time traveling a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I Jen sent me the letter and I just happened to be on a road trip and I happened to be sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial when I got the email. So I read the letter where the speech happened. Um, huh. And I thought, wow, you know, this is this is beautiful. I, you know. And yeah, it is a strongly worded letter. It's not as, uh, it's nowhere near as anodyne as the Harper's letter was. Um, and it's kind of funny that I've, I've kind of come full circle here because, um, you know, this whole blitz of me being interviewed on podcasts and having my work read by people started with a piece that I wrote about the Harper's letter, um, mm -hmm. which at the time I said, you know, I... Obviously, I'm I'm no one anybody would have asked to sign such a thing. But if I were asked, I would have signed it because I, I believe in what it said. Um, mm -hmm. And then here I am being asked to sign another another letter. <laughs> so I've I've climbed a few steps up the mountain, I guess. Um, you have. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I read it, and you know, I I'm sure I was taken by the moment, by the the poetry of it, but. I'm sitting at the Lincoln Memorial and I'm, I'm, you know, reading the the quotes that they have on the wall. And I'm, you know, I had just spent the entire day at the um, Smithsonian African American Museum, which is incredible and, you know, super emotional. It's, you know, it's heavy. There's a lot, there's a lot there to process and to, to deal with. And it's, it's wonderful. I highly recommend people do it, but yeah, so all these, all these ideas and emotions were coming through me and, you know, uh, a kind of a loop of of the I Have a Dream speech is on one of the screens in the museum. You know, you hear Martin Luther King saying those words and it's powerful. He was powerful and the sentiment is powerful. And I was, you know, I had all that in my mind and I read the letter and, you know, I think uh, I, I, you know, I just thought, yeah, I agree with this. I, I agree with the sentiment. I agree with the intention here. Um, and then, yeah, I heard a little bit about the the goings on in the background, um, and I thought, oh, well, you know, if 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 John Wood Jr. has some misgivings here, maybe I should rethink this. Like, maybe I shouldn't have been so quick to sign this thing. Maybe, you know, I wonder what his objections are. And I heard a little bit about what they were, um, and I I totally see where he's coming from, and I agree with him largely. Um, you know, he has more, he's much more educated on Martin Luther King himself. He's much more scholarly on Martin Luther King than I am. 
Um, I'm by no means an expert or a scholar on Martin Luther King, uh, but but that sentiment is still there in the letter, and it was enough for me to say I still agree with this, even though if I were writing the letter, I would have written it differently. I would have written certain parts of it differently, at least. Um, mm -hmm. I would have certainly included more star manning of the other side, um, which is one of the things that I think John was concerned about. We didn't um, we didn't do enough in the letter, or the the writers didn't do enough in the letter to kind of satisfy that sort of urge of look we understand that the, your project has this fundament fundamental goal and we share this goal mm -hmm. but we disagree with these specific tenets we reject these you know so it kind of the letter kind of kind of riffs lists off um you know we reject this and we believe in this and there's a list of that towards the end of the letter and mm -hmm. i agree with all of those things um so yeah, you know, I mean, it's uh, I would have written this, or I would have added that, but you know, it's not an I letter; it's a we letter. So, you know, yeah, it's, uh, you know, right. It's so not going to be something I would I would have written myself exactly. Right. But. Right. And I I would have, I was one of the authors, but not the primary author, and I probably would have done what you suggested, how you would have written it as well. But let me for a second channel my best Andrew Gutman, who's our uh, partner here. And, uh, yeah. and Andrew's a very bright guy. And, um, and, and, and maybe I'm channeling it because I worry he's right. Okay. Wait, wait, um, wait let me but, interrupt you to say Andrew Gutman is the primary letter of the primary author of the Dream Coalition letter. So for our listeners, if they're not familiar, that's mm. who you're channeling now. So go ahead, David. Sorry. Just... Yeah, I'm channeling him. But, <laughs> and, and partly because I fear he could be right even though I go back and forth on these myself, you know, this is in, in part an advocacy project. And, and those of us, and I, I count you as in this large movement or coalition, whatever we choose to call it, um, want to restore liberalism in our society. And we, have, we might have different theories on the best way of doing it. So one theory might be, who's our target audience? Well, our target audience are probably people who might largely agree with us, but they're not sure yet. And we've got to devise the kind of nuanced, soft language that will bring them along and get them off the fence and to understand why it's important to support liberals. And people, especially on the, let's say, the center left who haven't gone completely woke, but um, have, you know, they're sensitive and they're thoughtful and they want to do the right thing. Um, that's one theory of advocacy. The other theory of advocacy is you really have to build a movement by energizing your core. And you have to first energize your core. And we haven't really done that yet. And we've, and even if you overstep in doing so, you have to bring out that power. You have to be willing to use those um, levers of power. And you can only do it by bringing people out in, gro in droves um, to... Uh, to go out there and protest, to say the things that may be said, sometimes not in the most nuanced way, sometimes not star manning and so forth. And that, and I think that's where Andrew comes down and that, that's a more powerful way of driving a movement in these stages than, than thinking that we're going to, you know, gently move everybody off the fence who might agree with us. What do you think of that dilemma, that advocacy, strategic advocacy dilemma? Yeah, I get this a lot because it's really the, the main uh, the main argument that I get or criticism that I get of star manning, right? It's like, we can't, we can't star man all the time, right? We need to mobilize sometimes. And 
I don't think that those things are are mutually exclusive. I don't think that it's I don't think it's impossible to mobilize um, while star manning. I you know I'm I'm pretty pretty fucking motivated, right? And mm-hmm. I'm intent on not vilifying or dehumanizing my opponents. Um, and I'm I'm extremely motivated by the desire to achieve the goal that I have, which is to foster conversation and communication. So I think, you know, I think the difference is in what's easier. And I, I don't mean this in a kind of, uh, you know, a, I don't mean this as a criticism of, of Andrew or, or of the, the letter, really. It's just that it's, it's, it's easier to mobilize people by pointing to an enemy and saying, these are the ones we need to destroy. It's harder to mobilize people by saying, these are the ideas we need to combat, right? Because now we've moved to an abstraction and it's harder to mobilize people with abstractions, but it's not impossible. And the thing is that there are consequences to the first way. And, you know, you're kind of, you're kind of, it's a, what do you call it? It's a trade-off. So trade-off. you're going to, you're going to mobilize people. Sure. You're going to get them ramped up and, and ready, and they're going to be hitting the streets and marching, but they're going to have an enemy in mind. They're going to be othering. They're going to be making enemies out of potential allies because they're going to be sucked into this very human you know, sort of in-group, out-group tendency, right? And part of star manning is is wanting to offset that and neutralize that because it's a problem. Because the, the trade-offs are are imbalanced, and they're imbalanced in in the negative, right? I, I think that we end up making a bigger mess by doing it that way. So even though it takes longer to mobilize people through an idea. Even though it, it's more difficult to get people marching and on the streets saying, you know, we believe in liberal values, <laughs> I don't think it's impossible. I think people care enough, and I think the stakes are high enough if if you know how to articulate it, right? Because the stakes are really high. The stakes are we are going to, you know, this entire thing, this entire project is going to collapse because it is founded upon our ability to communicate with each other, and we are not doing that right now. So, so, you know, I, I, I think, you know, to, to coin another thing, I think it should be a call to open arms. You know, I think it should be a kind of with the fervency of, you know, militancy and, and, you know, boots on the ground sort of thing, but it should be geared towards, we don't want you to be an enemy. You know, I I wrote the other day on, on Twitter, there are two ways to eliminate your enemy. destruction. Or, you know, persuasion, conversion, right? And it seems like the first way is optimal because you're getting rid of them. But the inevitable consequences of that are myriad. And, and you know, the major ones are, first of all, you might, you might be destroying someone who isn't actually your enemy by accident because, you, you know, it's a false, it's a false uh, flag. And you become the thing that you wanted to destroy in the act of destroying it. And the third thing is just you create more enemies, right? So when you have this vicious approach, and I'm not saying that Andrew does, but this is kind of the the extension of this sort of thing, is when you have this vicious approach, 
you're going to get viciousness back, right? And there's a better way. If you convert your enemies into friends, you're making more friends and you're getting rid of your enemies. And that's more difficult to do. It requires more patience. It requires compassion. It requires time. But in the end, it's worth it. Your soul is intact, right? You're not, you're not just, you didn't just create a factory of enemies and you've gained allies. So I just think that, um, you know, there are a lot of tactical reasons for doing this sort of thing, but the reason that I would have, I would have put more star manning into the, this letter is because first of all, the thing that I just said, right? Like it's, we're more likely to kind of welcome people into the fold because we're not, we're not shutting the door on them. But the other thing is just that it inoculates us against these really petty and, um, you know, kind of ground level criticisms, right? So anybody can dismiss the letter as like, oh, this is another othering. This is another us versus them. This is another, you know, vilifying people who are trying to achieve social justice, vilifying people who care about racism, right? You're just, you're, you're calling us monsters. You know, no, that word is not used in the letter, but this is the, the kind of reaction that will inevitably come up. Um, I've already seen it. You know, the letter has been out for sure. not even, not even 24 hours. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of where I'm at. And with that, you know what I love though, um, Angel is, is, you know, I don't necessarily disagree with you. I didn't see as much of the aggression perhaps because I'm biased towards the letter, but here's what I love is what David said earlier is we saw the backlash or we, or we, not the back, but backlash is where we saw people, uh, disagree with it, like John Wood Jr. And we yeah. said, awesome. Awesome. Right. Let's right. have a, like, yes, we, we get that. Uh, yes, David and I, along with Andrew, helped, uh, Andrew was primary, but we all helped to put this together. But it was like, let's, at least we forced the dialogue. And instead of then running away from the dialogue and going, you know, like tag, you know, <laughs> in your mm-hmm. face and running away. I think that I'm really happy where this ended up. Because, I mean, I can't wait to, for our conversation on Saturday. Again, we're time warping because this won't come out till next week, where we're talking with people with different views. Because I do think getting the legacy, Martin Luther King's legacy right, and how it applies to our current situation and how we can make it apply to our current situation is critical. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to clarify that, you know, I'm kind of extrapolating from the starting point of, you know, the parts of the letter that I would have worded differently or that I would have put more into, you know, kind of star manning. Um, the letter is nowhere near as hostile as, as what I was describing. Right. Uh, I don't think it's, it's, I mean, I wouldn't have signed it if it, if it were right. So yeah, I just want to be clear. I, I don't mean to, um, straw man. I don't mean to create a, a, you know, a fake version of this letter that I'm now arguing against. Um, but it's just the the sentiment of we need to, you know, raise our fists. And I I, I understand it, but there are consequences and we should mm-hmm. be careful. And I think that, you know, there's a way to be a kind of warrior of compassion. There's a way to, you know, this is something else that I've I've written since we spoke about the star manning thing is, mm-hmm. you know, I get a lot of I get a lot of straw manning of star manning. Um, which is, you know, the main thing is I'm very frustrated by this idea that I'm just obsessed with being nice and it's civility porn and that I just want to sing Kumbaya with Nazis, right? You know, and it's, 
Yeah, and it, that's that's ridiculous. That's not at all what I'm doing or what I'm advocating for. You know, fight for what you believe in, argue strongly, um, but focus on the ideas and don't don't make monsters of people who hold different ideas. That's the only thing. It's just don't make the assumption right off the bat that you know your your opponent because you disagree with them is an asshole or a monster or beneath contempt or incapable of change. Mm -hmm. None of those things are true, you know? So mm -hmm. it's, that's really all it is. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, people have this idea of me like, oh, he just, he just wants to be nice. He wants people to like him. I really don't <laughs> care if people like me and I will disagree with you. Um, <laughs> look at my Twitter. I disagree with people all the time. <laughs> you do, you do. But, but there's a way to do it that doesn't kind of, you know, shut the door to well, like, because ultimately what I want is if I'm wrong, I want to find out. And if, mm -hmm. if you're wrong, I want to help you find out mm -hmm. because it's good to find out when you're wrong, because now you don't have to deal with that anymore. You're not wrong anymore. You're not, you know, furthering that idea or acting upon it. That's good. So that's really all I care about. I want to be persuaded when I'm wrong. And I want to persuade when others are wrong. I want to do my best to communicate. And there's a way to do that, that works better for humans than calling them an asshole, labeling them as a monster, or, you know, all these things that we see people do on Twitter. So <laughs> that's, 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 uh, that's the other thing there. I was just going to say, well, it's always great to talk to the warrior of compassion. Yes. By the way, you have a lot of, uh, I'll call them angelisms, a lot yes. of gems yes. that, um, that I try to write down when I can. Me too. Civility porn is cracking me up. Civility oh, I didn't make that one up. That's not me. Well, I don't know. I never heard that before. Civility porn is the best. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 the mischaracterization. But yeah, I didn't come up with that one. I don't know who right. did. Well, you're mm -hmm. still dropping some awesome gems, and I know that's just gonna continue on into the future. So until our next conversation. Yeah, for sure. Until Saturday. Talk to you soon. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week. Different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say Hold My Drink and the conversation gets real. <laughs>